Hello and welcome to the Sifted Podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And this is like a great reunion of the Sugar Babes because I am back from holiday and me and Eleanor are together in the same room for a miraculous performance of the Sifted Podcast. I'm excited about that, but I'm not excited about the fact that you just called us Sugar Babes. I was talking to someone who went to see the Sugar Babes recently, so they're in my mind. Moving on... In case you haven't listened to this podcast before and you're wondering what the hell is going on, at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And every week in this podcast, we take a peek inside the Sifted newsroom and we talk about the stories that our journalists have been out there breaking. This week, we're going to talk about the latest casualty of the crypto winter as crypto exchange Ziglu's valuation has been slashed in half by Robinhood, who was slated to buy them earlier this year. We're also going to hear about a cool startup that's actually doubled its valuation. And finally, we're going to be talking to Kai Nicole Schwartz, one of our reporters, about a very important piece that we have published, which was all about people's mental health at startups. And some of the findings are not especially happy. So we're going to be talking about that. But first, Amy, sugar babe, what's happening at Sifted this week? I feel like you're sceptical, but if you go and Google sugar babes tunes you will suddenly remember a lot of classics other than that we're still all very excited about the new sifted office we've added more padding to our sifted podcast room and we've asked our colleagues in the next room to be as quiet as mice so hopefully there will be no audio issues in this episode and the lineup for the roundtables and deep dive workshop sessions at our Sifted Summit, which is happening in October, have just come out. And they're really good. I want to go to all of them and I obviously will not be able to achieve that. But if you're coming along to the Sifted Summit, you may be able to. So check them out. They're going to be very useful, practical things that startup operators need to have a good old think about sessions led by very wise people who know the answers to those questions i'm really excited about tom blomfield coming out of semi-retirement yeah it's quite a coup so we called upon friend of the pod steve O'Hare, former tech crunch journalist and now head of strategy at zap the speedy grocery company and he called on his old friend tom blomfield and has dragged him out of retirement to talk to us about silly things going on in the world of startups I feel like Tom Blomfield is actually probably Batman. He just doesn't want us to know. And he's, he's definitely not a sugar babe. But he's been doing lots of angel investments. Yep, so. and we have ma- finally managed to list, we think, just about all of them on Sifted. So if you want to check out what kind of startups he's been splashing his cash on, check that article out. So, enough talk about pop stars and Batman. On to our first story of the day. We are talking about the crypto slump. So this week we reported that the crypto exchange app Ziglu has had its valuation cut in half by Robinhood, the big US fintech, which plans to buy it. Eleanor, what's the background? Yeah, so everyone who listens to this podcast is probably familiar with the US retail investing giant Robinhood. They got pretty famous over the pandemic when everyone is sitting at home and it was like, oh, what can I do with my time? But trade stocks, great idea. And they 
previously had tried to enter the UK market. It's a US company, right? But that didn't go so well. So they had to pull out of the UK market. And then in April of this year, they announced that they were going to buy Zigbu, which is a crypto exchange app. And this was going to be the second time that they were going to try and break into the UK market. They originally offered $170 million to purchase Zigglu, but we saw a document yesterday that said that they'd actually revised their offer for Zigglu, given the fact that cryptocurrencies are down. Obviously, there's a lot of risk in the crypto market right now, and they revised it down to less than half of that, $72.5 million. And what does that mean for Zigglu's investors, who are obviously hoping for a nice old payday? Totally. So... For Robinhood, obviously, this means that it's much cheaper for them to enter the UK market now. But for the investors, not such a great deal, right? Zigglu did two rounds of financing on Cedars, which is a crowdfunding platform in the UK. They raised money from the first round in 2020 at £34 a share. And then for their second round of crowdfunding last year, they raised at £48.30 a share. And if you compare that to the amended offer price of Robinhood, which is £28.29 a share, you can see that that's a pretty steep drop for some of those investors. And I think this is quite interesting because in one of the messages that Sifted has seen, one Cedars investor said that he thinks Zigglu's directors should be ashamed for accepting this revised deal. And another person has called it disgusting behaviour from Zigglu's board. And my perspective is a bit like the crypto market has crashed. You know, do they want no deal to happen or a deal to happen? Because Robinhood is not, it's, it doesn't make sense for it to pay the amount it was going to pay before the crypto market crashed. So, yeah, I think that that's a really good point, Amy. You know, it's they got a deal. So they did. They were able to sell the company. The message to those investors from the CEO of Ziglu said that the board had spent significant time negotiating the revised offer, and they'd even considered alternative options, including other funding sources and significant cost-cutting measures. So it does seem like they did try and find an alternative solution, but obviously it's tough times for crypto right now. Anyway, on to some happier news. Let's talk about Microverse, a startup from Barcelona that doubled its valuation this week. No mean feat in these harsh times for fundraising. And it came along with the news that they've extended their Series A round by $4 million, taking the total that they raised for that round to $16.5 million. Amy, who is Microverse? So Microverse is one of this kind of growing cohort of companies that basically train people to become coders using this still relatively novel kind of funding model which is called an income share agreement and that basically means that the students are able to start the course without having to pay for it up front and in exchange once they get a job they start paying it back incrementally so it's a way to kind of enable basically anyone to learn to code because you don't have to have the cash up front. Is there any specific kind of talent that Microverse is working with? Yeah, so a way that Microverse is maybe quite different from some of these other companies that include Ironhack and Lewagon is that it's really focused on training students based in developing economies like Africa and Latin America rather than the US and Europe. And the founder, who's a guy called Ariel Camus, says that he thinks that there is just this absolutely enormous and totally untapped goldmine of tech talent out there once you look beyond, you know, North America and Europe. He said, this is a quote, how is it that we're wasting 90 to 95% of the world's potential? I can't imagine a future where that doesn't change. 
So how come we're seeing a lot of these round extensions, obviously, recently. How come Microverse decided to top up the rounds? Something must be going well. Yeah, so Microverse told Tim Smith, our reporter based in Barcelona, who interviewed them, that the number of applicants to its programme has risen from 10,000 to 30,000 every month over the last year. So it will be using the new money that is raised to double its team to basically meet the massive incoming demand. And it's perhaps not really surprising that Microverse is getting so many applications because it says that 90% of students are managing to find jobs within six months of completing their studies. And that's also, that's remote employment. So that's work that they can do from wherever they are based. Sounds like it's really opening up some opportunities for people in developing countries, but what are some of the challenges for this company? So another thing that's different about Microverse from some of these other companies is that it works on a peer-to-peer training model. So basically people who are further along the course than you train the newbies who are coming in at the bottom. And obviously that does lead to some kind of quality control problems. And that is something that the founder kind of admitted is an issue that they're looking into when we last spoke to Microverse when they raised the Series A in June last year. Another big challenge that Microverse is facing that the founder told us about is is basically getting some of these big, you know, big global employers to recognise that it doesn't matter where these coders are based. You know, they're going to be great coders, but he does. But he did say to us that there is still so much racism and classism, and that's happening every day to their students. But it looks like they really do have some positive traction and their students are getting hired by places like Deloitte, HSBC and Microsoft. So we'll see what happens. And now we are on to our next story with Zosha Vanat, our Central and Eastern Europe reporter. She had a story out of Ukraine. And as we know, it's a country with a lot of tech talent, but the startup ecosystem is fighting for survival like the rest of the country. Zosha, we had some new data this week. What did you hear? Yes, thanks, Eleanor. So first of all, we have to remember that the Ukrainian startups have shown an extraordinary resilience over those last six months. They have been operating under really extraordinary, terrible circumstances. We hear many of those stories of founders and their employees working from bunkers and and basements during bombardments and it's really extraordinary and actually I've been I've been speaking to some VCs recently and those who have invested in Ukraine or, or have teams in Ukraine and they they all say that they've been massively impressed with how Ukrainian startups have been surviving basically in in the recent months. But you're right, there is some new data coming out from the country. It's a report carried out by several organizations in Ukraine, including, for example, Tech Ukraine. And the numbers that are coming out of this survey are actually rather grim. So 91% of Ukrainian founders that have been surveyed, they say that they need financial support right now. And almost half of them say that if they don't get any extra cash, either an increase of revenue or some sort of new investment, they won't be able to operate normally in the next one, two, three months. So it's really, it's really an emergency in a sector, I would say. This is what we can see from, from that report. And how important is the sector, the IT sector, the tech sector to Ukraine itself? 
So Ukraine has always been extremely proud of its IT sector and of its startups and its entrepreneurs. They are the home of big European startup success stories such as Grammarly, GitLab, Preply. It even minted two new unicorns in the last six months. So one of them is called Earthlate and it's a workflow automation startup. And another one, Unstoppable Domain, which is a blockchain and NFT platform. And it's quite important to, to say that the country's IT sector is the only one right now that still demonstrates growth this year, despite the war. So this really is a very important part of the Ukrainian economy and one of its biggest pride, I would say. And now for our first main story of the podcast this week and sticking with Zosha and a story that came out at the end of last week, which was all about why startups and tech companies are really pretty rubbish at talking to governments. And this is a bit of speciality of Zosha's because she was based in Brussels for many years, understands it a lot better than most people in the world. So give us a bit, like what, what is lobbying, Zosha? How does it work? How does the lobbying machine work in the EU? You made it sound as if I was a lobbyist myself, Amy, which I wasn't. But yeah, you're right. Lobbying is actually a very important part of the policy making and the life in Brussels, really. So when we when we hear the word lobbying, we, we might associate it with one of those big, bad corporates which are trying to ban some rules just to get more money at the expense of the society, which, I mean, sometimes it's true, sometimes it happens that way, but, but the reality of lobbying in Brussels is actually much more trivial than that. Almost every big company that we can think of, they have a bigger or smaller team in Brussels, and they're the part of many, many trade associations of different sectors and subsectors. There, there are really millions of them in Brussels. And these people who are mostly lawyers, sometimes they are also policy specialists, but, but mostly lawyers, they meet up with policymakers. They try to convince them that this or that policy change might be dangerous for some part of the European economy or like some European enterprises. They take part in public consultations. Uh, they give feedback to the regulations and European policymakers are usually quite open to that. So there is the whole process where lobbyists and companies can get involved and they usually do it quite a lot. It's, it's the whole game that everyone is willingly and happily playing in the, in the city. And is it a game that startups are playing or have they not really cottoned on to that yet? That was the thing that I noticed when I was still in Brussels, that even though many of those regulations, they affect startups directly, there are not many of them. There are not many of those smaller companies, smaller tech companies that actually get involved even in capital cities, you know, like in the national governments, there are not many startups that have people who actually deal with policymakers and policy making. And why is that? 
Well, th- there are different reasons. I think the biggest issue here is the, the lack of resources, resources being money, but also time and I would say headspace. So if a founder of a young startup of a small company, if they have a thousand of things they have to deal with, then probably some sort of regulatory change going on in distant Brussels. It's not something which is on top of their priorities. One quote that stood out for me from your article was you spoke to someone called Linda Griffin, who's VP of Global Public Policy at Cree, which is one of the big uh, Swedish health tech companies. But she's also uh, co-founded a a kind of trade body for startups called the European Tech Alliance. And she said, uh, I'm quoting now, it's about how we interpret time. Startups are thinking in weeks and months, policymakers are thinking in years. How do we bring these two very different schedules together? So I guess from the interviews you did, Sasha, do you think it is reconcilable or, you know, is the, the pace of life in Brussels and the pace of life at startups never really going to tally up? Yeah, so this is the answer that has been coming up the most in my interviews, the time. The time is the problem. Democracy takes time. And for startups, time is of the essence. What is possible, I think, is bringing those two timelines closer together. And for that, the communication is needed. So the startups have to communicate their needs. So they have to state clearly that some of the changes have to be done quicker than in four years, right? And policymakers, they have to understand that the reality in which startups are operating are much different than their own reality but also the reality of the big companies that they've been dealing with. And I guess there have been some successful instances of lobbying in startup land, haven't there? There's been Index, the the big VC firm has had this big campaign called Not Optional, which it's been working on for, I think, quite a few years now. And it's, it's basically lobbying for better regulations around stock option schemes. Yeah, I mean, these are the examples that show that it is possible. The people from Index, they say that, of course, it's taken years, right? Like the first time they started to lobby for better stock options, it was, I I think, in 2016. So it was like a long time ago. But what I think is one area where startup could be more vocal are the new regulations. So it's not changing the existing regulations because it really takes a lot of effort. But startups usually operate in innovative areas, right? So in the sectors, in areas where there are no rules in place. And here, policymakers, they really want to hear from them because they have no experience, right? With things like AI, for example, but also like smaller, smaller areas like plant-based food. And sometimes in these cases, I think regulations can be sometimes deal breaker for some of those companies. Cool. So if I'm a plant-based meat startup or I'm, I don't know, a new kind of mobility option and I know I'm going to need to get involved in regulation, what's the best step? Do I just put someone in Brussels myself or is it better to kind of join some sort of industry group? I think that for, especially for small companies, it's better and probably more cost efficient to join some sort of group 
And as I said, there are many of those in Brussels and there are new groups emerging as well. And those trade bodies, they usually have experts, they have all the contacts, they have the network, they have the skills needed. So that would be my strategy if I was a young founder. And finally, we're speaking to Kai Nicole Schwartz about our latest piece of community journalism, where we survey sifted readers to ask us about things about working at startups. And in this particular one, we were asking about mental health. And Kai heard from more than 130 people who've worked in startups. Kai, what did you find? Yeah, well, we spoke to people across a number of different countries and, and sectors in European tech. And we asked them things about how their mental health has been impacted at work, whether or not there was support on offer, the types of support that they had on offer, what they felt caused the mental health to suffer, and any advice that they have for other people going through a rough patch. And the headline is that mental health problems are absolutely rife at startups. Right, 87% of people said that their mental health had suffered as a result of work. And the kicker here is that less than half of them felt like they were working at a startup that currently supported their mental health, which I think considering the positive steps across society to remove taboos and stigmas around mental health came as a real surprise that many people didn't feel like they could access the help that they needed. And so what specific issues did they talk about, Kai? Well, the most common was was burnout, and 84% of people said that this was what caused their mental health problems to suffer. And a number of people talked about this idea of hustle culture and the expectation of doing more with less. And someone said that this was really built into startup mythology. And many people told us about this idea of having a lack of direction and really struggling to prioritise work and time and this massively contributing to, to burnout. And we also heard from founders who really suffered. And one in particular told us that they experienced massive burnout after going months without wanting to admit to their co-founders and investors that they were struggling. And one issue that a lot of people talked about, and I guess this is also a little bit of a stereotype of tech companies, is bro culture. What did people say about that? Yeah, well, a fifth of people said that they experienced discrimination and harassment in the workplace. And one of the main reasons that we heard about was this idea of bro culture. And one startup manager in particular said that from day one, they were fighting an uphill battle, trying to manage men that just didn't want to take her seriously. And by month three, she absolutely dreaded coming into work. But a fifth also said that bullying was the reason that their mental health suffered. And we heard stories of post-traumatic stress disorder, of people being manipulated and in some cases gaslit by the people they worked with. So I think one of the really great aspects of these surveys that you do, Kai, is that you actually ask people for their advice and on you know, what can be done to fix this, right? This is obviously an awful situation, right? So many of the situations that people described here, I would never wish on anyone. But what advice did people give for bosses and for management to try and improve this? Well, in some cases, they just said, quit, you can't do anything about it and you need to get out of the situation. In other cases, though, speaking to a manager or speaking to the company about it can really help. And actually, it wasn't all negative in this survey. And 58% of people did tell us that they felt comfortable speaking to their manager about mental health issues. And one of the reasons for this was having a manager that was 
open and transparent about their own problems. And this, for a lot of people, really helped to destigmatize the issue. But creating work-life boundaries was was another way that a lot of people thought that managers needed to help more. And one person said that one of the best managers that they ever had advocated and demonstrated downtime, which was a line that I really liked. But there are other things as well, like having a mental health care platform as a perk. And a third of people we heard for in this survey told us that their company offered this. And it really helped a lot of them. Um, and for any managers that are considering going down that route, you want to keep your eyes peeled on the Sifted site next week because we'll be releasing an article that's exploring a load of different options and products and services that are, that are available for startup managers looking to support their staff. Thanks for joining us, Kai. This is an issue that Sifted has been following since the really super early days. I mean, Sifted's a startup, right? Anyone who works in these kind of businesses, with you know, it's full of a whole bunch of driven people. You really want to create this thing, make this project happen. I don't think we're ever going to have the best work-life balance, but better work-life balance so that no one actually burns out while building a business. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, please find all our coverage on sifted.eu. And don't forget to take our listener survey for a month of free membership. The link is in the description of the podcast, along with all of the articles mentioned in this episode, with links to go read them. Also, please check out those roundtables and deep dive workshops that I mentioned, which are now live and listed on our Sifted Summit website, which is summit.sifted.eu, where you can find out all of the details about that event, which is happening on October 5th and 6th in London. And you can keep up with all of the amazing Sifted content if this podcast is not enough for you. We've got newsletters, we're on Twitter, or you can always reach out to us directly at hello at sifted.eu. You can reach out to us and let us know who is your favourite sugar babe? What is your favourite sugar babe song? And do you think that British girl bands are better than American girl bands? We know who's going to win this competition. Do we though? Do we? Um, Before I slap Amy, let's stop this podcast. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.